0: Would you take a moment and pray with me, please? Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We are so grateful to you, my Father, that that you have given us this word, that we may know you, that we may know your Son, that we may have a message from you, my Father, that that affects us, that makes us better people. My Father, I thank you for for what your word does in us. And we are grateful to you, Father. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon us now. That he would come upon me, my Father, to guide me and instruct me and use my lips and my words and my mind and my heart, Father, to deliver your word as you want it delivered. And I pray that you would prepare the ears and hearts of your people. That we would hungrily receive your word as, as it's your word for us today. We glorify you and exalt you. And we lift you up. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Please open your Bibles. Uh, those of you that, that have brought your Bibles, uh, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark. You can also use the insert that is in, in your bulletin and, um, and or you can use the Bibles that are in in the pews uh, in front of you as well. Um, last week we started, um, actually you started with Father Charles for which I'm very grateful that he was here very grateful for the time he gave uh, father steve and i off and uh so i i hope you enjoyed him we we love father charles we we truly love that young man uh and um and so we're very pleased that that he was uh, that he was here in in our place so he started you and and i'm going to continue uh looking as we go into a new calendar a new liturgical calendar that that we saw today with the second uh, candle of advent being lit Uh, we're starting to look at the Gospel of Mark we're starting to look and and throughout the entire year 2015 we may go to John a few times and and some of the others a few times but mostly we're going to be sticking to the Gospel of Mark and so that's going to be our text for for our learning, for our walk of faith, uh this uh this this coming year. And so I wanted to start by giving you a little bit of an introduction uh to this gospel before I I, I actually get into the meat of of what uh what we read today. Uh the first thing I want you to know about the Gospel of Mark is that it is pretty common knowledge, it's a knowledge that is probably held by by almost all, stud- uh, all students of the Bible that the Gospel of Mark was probably the first of the four Gospels to be written. Okay, the, the, the Gospel of Mark was the first one of the four Gospels uh, that was written. Um, and it, it served as the basis from which both Mark and Luke Uh, took some of the outline in a way but also added their own research and their own things that they had experienced especially Matthew being a disciple of Jesus and of course John being a disciple of Jesus but Luke was not a disciple of Jesus whatever Luke learned about Jesus it was things that he heard from Paul from st. Paul but also his own research and Luke was the one that wrote both the Gospel of, of Luke and the Book of Acts. But Mark was not a disciple of Jesus. Uh, but I will tell you a little bit more about that. Uh, so, first of all, the Gospel of Mark was probably the very first of the Gospels. Secondly, who is this John who is this Mark? Well, the, the Gospel did not have his signature. The gospel, all that the gospel that we knew from the gospel was that it was written by somebody named Mark. But historically and from the testimony of those who lived in that time of the church, this Mark was probably the John Mark that appears so often through the book of Acts and appears in other of the of the letters of Paul and even Peter may have mentioned uh, this mark this was the John Mark who was a young man and whose family seemed to have a house in Jerusalem that kind of served as the, the hub of ministry in Jerusalem and if you remember when Peter was arrested and, and an angel came and let him out and he the first thing he did is he went to the house of John Mark where he knew the disciples and the Christians were meeting and praying for his release to let them know that he that what had happened with the angel. Now this this John Mark is the same John Mark that gets in trouble with Paul very early on. He gets in trouble with Paul, because Paul, when he's going to go in his first journey, he takes this young man, Mark, together with Barnabas, and they go on their first missionary journey through Galatia and all of that area. But John Mark quit at the very beginning of the journey. Almost almost at the beginning, as they were entering the area of Galatia. We don't know why or how, but John Mark quit the mission and Paul never forgot him never forgave him Paul was pretty harsh in the way he treated John Mark as a quitter when he needed him the most and they were a team of three and 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 he quit however at the end of Of Paul's life pretty much when he is in Rome arrested he writes I believe in in the letter to Timothy he writes that please send Mark to me send Mark to me because he's going to be very useful to me and he there seems to have been a reconciliation between Mark uh, and Paul but in between in between the the fallout and the reconciliation it seems that john mark became attached to peter became very attached to peter from what tradition tells us and what historians of the church tell us he attached himself to to peter when when he wanted to go in the second missionary journey with paul paul would not have it and and the, that was the reason of the separation between paul and barnabas Barnabas was an encourager, and he wanted to encourage these young men. Paul needed soldiers that were going to go into the field and fight hard for the gospel, and he didn't have any use for anybody that would quit on him. And But, but Barnabas went on a separate journey, and eventually Mark became attached uh, to Peter. So in reality, though Mark was not a disciple of Jesus Christ... What we can say is that what Mark wrote to us in his gospel is what he heard proclaimed by Peter. Peter preached Jesus wherever he went. And Mark came along and Mark learned all that he had to learn from the proclamation of St. Peter who would preach any and everywhere, both in Judea and in Jerusalem, and eventually he went out into the Gentile territory. And whatever Mark absorbed, he absorbed it from Peter. And we might say that then this gospel is really the gospel of Peter, but that is not correct to say because Mark took the time To learn this stuff, to learn and to know Jesus from Peter, but he added his own personality to the gospel. He took the time when all the disciples were dying around him, and there was the danger that the gospel would die with the testimony of the apostles. He took it upon himself to write it down for perpetuity, so that we today could read the gospel, know Jesus, because of what Mark did. So I don't want to take at all any of the credit that would take from Mark but I'm, I'm just teaching you that Mark learned what he learned from Saint Peter. Now the Gospel of Mark was probably, and this is held by almost everyone, was probably written in Rome. It was probably written in Rome uh, before Mark left Rome to go to Alexandria, tradition tells us that Mark becomes the bishop of Alexandria, but before he leaves, that the Roman church says to him, please don't leave without writing us the gospel. And it almost seems when you look at the gospel of Mark that it was written in a hurry. It's it's just very short and very concise and very to the point. And it seems like he just put down his thoughts before he would leave. Now, if we are going to give a date to the Gospel of Mark, I would say to you, the Gospel of Mark was probably written between sixty and seventy AD. Okay? Jesus was crucified sometime around thirty or thirty-three and and uh Uh, in the Gospel of Mark was probably written between 60 and 70 AD. And why would we date it that way? Well, first of all, because one of the things we know about this Gospel is that it was probably written after Peter had been killed. Okay, Peter had been killed, the witness and the Gospel is probably died with him, and that's what prompted Mark to go ahead and and write the Gospel. And we know that Peter and Paul both died at about 63, 64 A.D. So we can say that the Gospel of Mark was written between 60 and 70 A.D. It is the shortest of all of the Gospels. It is the shortest. Like I said, it almost seems that it was written in a hurry. There's only 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. While Matthew has 28 uh, chapters, Luke has 24 chapters, and John has 21 chapters. It is the shortest of all of them. But one of the things that I find kind of fascinating and lovely about the Gospel of Mark, and, and, and if you read the very first verse, it just seems that, that Mark was giving us in the very first verse the outline of his Gospel. It says in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. This is how he opens his gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when we read the gospel of Mark, we might say we want to divide, or we should divide, the gospel of Mark into two major sections. The first section is from chapters 1 through 8. Chapters 1 through 8. And, and I might call that section where Mark tells us that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, that whole section ends in chapter 8 with Jesus in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is where Jesus says to his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say that you are one of the prophets, others say this and that and that other thing. Everybody had an opinion about Jesus. And and Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter says, you are the Christ. That kind of brings an end to that first section of of the Gospel of Mark, where he is presented and concludes with the statement and testimony of Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. The next section concludes, it's, it's from chapter 9 to chapter 15, and it concludes with the centurion at the cross saying, truly, this is the Son of God. Remember the centurion? Truly, this man was the Son of God. And that's what concludes that section. So at the beginning of the of the gospel, we have a Jew declaring that he's the Christ, the Messiah. While at the end of that next section, we have a Gentile proclaiming him as the Son of God. So now you have the Jews get the gospel and the Gentiles get the gospel. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And and it almost seems that as Mark begins the the gospel, he already gives us a hint of where he's going. He's going to present Jesus as both the Jewish Messiah, the Christ to the Gentiles, but also the Son of God to all the Gentiles. Okay? We can also say that the gospel is historical in nature but it is not a biography okay he wasn't writing a biography what he was writing down was the details of the proclamation that came from peter as he remembered it and he wrote it down in orderly fashion for the for the people of rome for the christian church in rome jesus is presented in the gospel of mark as the servant In fact, it says in chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of Mark hardly deals with the words of Jesus. It deals mostly with the works of Jesus. He gives us a lot of the details of where Jesus went and what He did. Unlike the other Gospels that spend a lot of time in the sayings of Jesus and what Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount and this and that, you won't find these things in the Gospel of Mark. He's more focused on the ministry of Jesus and what He did for the world in dying in the cross. He is focused on the works, not so much on the words of Jesus. The main feature of the Gospel of Mark is probably chapter 14 and 15, which are the longest chapters in the whole Gospel and have to do with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He spends the longest time of his gospel telling us about what Jesus did on the cross, what happened to him, his betrayal, his, ju- his uh, trial, his beatings, his, uh, his crucifixion, and his death on the cross. The longest chapters in the whole gospel is those two gospels. It takes a, a big chunk of what the gospel of Mark is all about. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the conditions under which the gospel is being written, because I think it's imperative we understand that. First of all, I already told you, Paul and Peter have been killed already. Peter was crucified head down, because when he was going to be crucified, he said he was not worthy to die as his Lord had died. So making fun of him, they just turned him upside down and crucified him head down. St. Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, could not be crucified, but he was rather beheaded. So both of them died within days of one another in Rome. It was the time in which the Emperor Nero was reigning in Rome. Nero was crazy, literally crazy. If we know today Caesarean session is because Nero opened up his wife's belly to look at the baby inside. Killing both of them, of course. That's where we get the idea of Caesarean session from Nero Caesar. That's how crazy he was. He was crazy enough that he decided that he wanted to change the name of Rome to his own name, Neronia. And so he set fire to Rome the only problem is that the fire went farther than he intended and almost all of Rome was burned and when they were looking for whom to blame he pointed to the Christians. And a tremendous persecution, one of the first major persecutions against the Christians came under the reign of Nero. And this was a time when the Christians in trying to escape the persecution, started living among the catacombs in Rome. Among the tombs, the burial places, underneath Rome, where the catacombs were and where people were buried, that's where the Christians kind of went to hide, because of the tremendous persecution that they were experiencing. The Gospel of Mark tells these Christians that are being persecuted, that they are suffering like their Lord suffered. The Gospel intends to help these Christians understand that their persecution was the same persecution that Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, had suffered. That there was an equity between their lives as believers in the life of their Lord and Savior and King. And in that, that they would find some source of courage Of comfort, of knowing they were imitators of Christ, not only in their salvation, but even in his persecution, his suffering, and his death. In a way, one of the things I'm going to be repeating to you probably throughout the year, as I remember, is that the Gospel of Mark is a call to the Christians to return to the wilderness. To return to a wilderness experience, and the wilderness is not comfortable. A wilderness is harsh, and it's hard, and it's dangerous. Mark is the only one of the Gospels that when he's telling us about the um, temptations of Jesus, he adds that Jesus went to the wilderness and lived among the wild beasts the only one that mentions the idea of the wild beasts in Jesus because there is a real sense in which he's trying to tell the believers there may be wild beasts in your future such as the lions that they were thrown to in the Colosseums there was an intent that the Christians would recognize that they were imitators of Christ in every respect and it was dangerous And it was a call to return to the wilderness. You have to notice that this gospel does not begin with the nativity. This gospel says nothing about the birth of Jesus, or the early years of Jesus, or the angel visitation, or Mary, or or Joseph. Uh, This gospel takes us right to the wilderness from the very, very beginning. To the wilderness of Judea by a river Jordan that dies and ends in the Dead Sea or the Salton Sea. That's where Mark brings his hearers, his readers, immediately he brings them to the wilderness experience. And when we think of the wilderness experience, we have to remember the Jews in the wilderness of their own. We have to remember of their journey in the wilderness as they left Egypt and escaped slavery in Egypt, and they had to go through the wilderness of Sinai. There was no immediate entrance into the promised land. There was a wilderness experience, and it seems that the wilderness experience of the Jews was necessary. They had to experience the wilderness and they had to experience the god that would be with them through the wilderness the god that when they were hungry fed them with manna and when they were fed up with manna gave them quail and when they were thirsty gave them water from the rock a god that provided for them throughout the wilderness so that their shoes never wore out and so their clothing never wore out and they were led through the wilderness Every day of their lives, but they needed to learn that life in the wilderness sometimes was necessary before you enter the promised land. In the wilderness, there are such teachings that we would never learn when we're in comfortable times. Sometimes the wilderness of our lives... The loss, the hungers, the pains, the things we go through and we wonder where God is, those sometimes are bigger lessons to us than the things we may learn when everything is comfortable and nice and beautiful. The wilderness is a teaching school for believers. It's a teaching school that should not be avoided. But we should actually look to God in our wilderness and cry out to him, Lord, I need you. I need you, I need you now, without you I'm lost, I can't go on." The wilderness experience. And so now, as we look at chapter 1, we are returning to the wilderness. We're returning to the wilderness because the wilderness is associated with sonship. God allows His people to experience the wilderness that they may know him as their father their provider and their king it is the lesson of the wilderness that brings his people closer to him and teaches them to depend on him the wilderness is associated with sonship and Israel became a son of God in the wilderness at Mount Sinai and experienced the fatherhood of God through their experience of the wilderness and now it is Jesus who comes to the wilderness And here he is declared, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And these believers in the catacombs in Rome had to learn sonship through their own wilderness experience. And we will learn how much God loves us and how much he's our father when we need him the most. When we don't need him, we take him for granted when we're in pain and hungry and thirsty and in need, is that we cry out, God, come, and the Lord is always with us. And we learn sonship through obedience and through hardships. We learn sonship. And so the wilderness is associated with sonship. And so Mark brings us immediately in his gospel to the wilderness experience before there is an entrance into the promised land and into, into the promise of the kingdom of God that Jesus would announce. I want us to look a moment at this chapter and look at the towering f- person, the towering figure that John the Baptist is in this first chapter. Just how huge John the Baptist is. First of all, I want you to recognize that the people were so hungry for the Word of God. It had been 400 years since they last heard a prophet arise and say, Thus says the Lord. The last of the prophets was Malachi. Between Malachi and the appearance of John the Baptist, there's about 400 years of the people waiting for God to say something about their lives and how to live and how to guide them. And will He ever free us from these Romans and these Greeks and these Romans and and all these people? Where is our God? And all of a sudden there's this strange looking man, dressed strangely, dressed like a man of the wilderness, like a wild man, appearing by the Jordan and starting to cry out, Repent! For the kingdom of God is upon us. You can imagine that's why everybody kept, came running from every place. They came running from Judea and from every place. Here's a man that will again tell us, Thus says the Lord. Those are the conditions at which John appears by the river Jordan, crying out. But the thing about John the Baptist is that John the Baptist was very clear of who he was and who Jesus was. Though he was prominent and a towering figure in those days, and everybody was hearing of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was very clear that he was a man of the wilderness. And not the man of God. Not the man from heaven. He was the man sent into the wilderness. While Jesus would be the man of heaven that would come into the into the world. John the Baptist was very clear that he was the messenger and not the message. John the Baptist was very clear that he was the voice. But he was not the one that would come. John the Baptist was very clear that he was the preparer of the way, not the promise. John the Baptist was very clear that he was the one that baptized with water, but the one was coming that would baptize with the very Spirit of the Living God. John the Baptist knew his limitations. He knew his ministry. He knew his calling, and he was going to be obedient to it, but he knew he was only the announcer, that the real one was yet to come. So John the Baptist points to Jesus, and almost as quickly as he points to Jesus, he disappears. He dies almost immediately at the beginning of the gospel. He did his job. He was towering. He was enormous. Everybody heard of him. But he was very clear he needed to diminish, and Jesus needed to increase. And so, in the history of John the Baptist, he died very young life. A very young life, probably no more than about 30 years old. He was kind of contemporary with Jesus by just a few months. And he come, he did what he was called to do, and he died. Killed, beheaded also. You see, one of the things that John the Baptist did that I find fascinating is that John the Baptist Baptist calls the Jews to the wilderness so that they can meet God again. And John the Baptist calls God to the wilderness so he can meet his people. That's what John was doing. John was calling Jesus to come and meet his people there in the wilderness of Judea by the river Jordan. But he was also calling the people to prepare their hearts so that they could meet their God once again in the wilderness. And that I find fascinating, that that's part of what's happening at the baptism. God is meeting his people, and his people are meeting their God in the wilderness. As I said to you uh, John the Baptist was a, a huge the probably somebody the greatest preacher at the time that you could hear towering figure but more important than who he was I think the towering thing about John the Baptist was his preaching and his preaching was a preaching of repentance Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It it seems to me that from all I read about John the Baptist in the Gospels, he had only one sermon. And he repeated it over and over every day, every moment, every hour, and every time a new group came to be baptized. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and prepare yourselves to meet your God before it's too late. Now, uh, repentance, the word repentance, metanoia, what it actually means is not, it doesn't mean be sorry for your sins. Okay, we all experience sorrow whenever, number one, we're caught, we're sorry right away. But even if we're not caught, but we have a conscience, we know we spend some time with some problems because we know what we did. We know the lie we told, we know the the day we cheated, the day we stole, the day we did whatever, and and it pursues us and, and burns us. That's not repentance. Repentance, the word actually means turning around completely 180 degrees. That's metanoia. It's a change, a turning around. If I know I'm going in this direction, and I recognize that I am wrong, I am offending God, in some way I am disobeying God, I need to turn around and start walking in the way that is of God. That is repentance. Repentance is not sorrow and then go back and do it some more and be sorry again then come on Sunday and then repent and confess your sins and I absolve you of your sins and then you go and on Monday you repeat it all over again and you could... that is not repentance. Christian repentance is a transformation that occurs in the heart because our sins become too heavy for us to bear and we only know that in Jesus Christ we can be relieved of that burden. And we come to Him and we say I am broken about it. Lord Jesus, I don't want to live this way anymore. Help me to turn around and walk away from the old ways and start walking the way that you want me to walk. That is repentance. Repentance is a change of heart and a change of life. That is what John what John is preaching to the people and it's cutting people's hearts it's cutting them deep and they feel the pain of having been away from the Lord and in that process of being circumcised to the heart like Paul would say is that they come to the River Jordan confessing their sins asking for forgiveness and being baptized and renewed and cleansed from their sins by the symbol of the water now if John the Baptist is a towering figure Jesus Christ is the biggest towering figure in this passage because John immediately tells us that the one coming is the Son of God and John immediately tells us that Jesus who's coming is so much more important than he is It's mightier than I I'm not even worthy to bow down and untie the, 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 the sandals. I'm not even worthy to do the menial job of a servant. I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. That's how great he is. If you think I'm great and a towering evangelist here in the, in, in, in the Jordan River, he who's coming is mightier than I whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. I baptize with water only to prepare you so that he can baptize you later, later with the spirit of the living God. John, John, John was not confused. He was not confused, nor did he let his fame change the message that he had for his people. It was a message of repentance. Because unless, you know what repentance does? Repentance, true repentance, not just I'm sorry, but true repentance opens your heart for what God is still to do. It opens you to become a different individual. You acknowledge your sin. You acknowledge your addiction. You acknowledge your failure. You acknowledge your mistake. You don't hide it under a rug. You don't put it in your back pocket. You don't put it in a closet. You think nobody knows what you're doing. But God knows all things in your heart. And when you repent, your heart is open so that Jesus can come in and bring a transformation in the life of an individual. That is what John was preaching, and that's what needs to be preached today in our world. Because we are all believers. We believe in Jesus, but it doesn't mean that we are truly repented of all our sins, not always. We all sometimes stuff hidden. We don't think anybody knows it. It's between me and God, or it's between me and me. Well, it's not between me and me. Everything that I do and think and every intention of my heart is known by Almighty God and by the Spirit of God within me. I may hide it from everybody, but you cannot hide it from the Lord your God. And He knows whether your repentance is real or it's not. But when you do repent and trust Him at His Word, He will transform you into something you can never transform yourself into. And the peace that will come in your heart, and the forgiveness that will come in your heart, and the power of the Spirit of God that will come upon you, will be so transformational, that you will become a living gospel, to all that would know you and see you. That's the message that was cutting people's hearts that's the message that was making people flock to the jordan that's the message they wanted to hear which was raw not beautified it was a raw message that sometimes cuts deeper and harder and quicker than than loving little words here and there sometimes we need to hear the harsh things of the wilderness so that we can be shaken into the reality that I may not be walking like God wants me to walk. And it's time that a change be made in my life. All through this year, I'm going to be taking you to the wilderness. By the way, there's no sin anyone here has committed that is bigger than anybody else's. If you think your sin is worse than anybody, forget it just forget it immediately your sin may be different than mine but there are other people that have gone through the same thing you have gone through and worse things that you have gone through and they still have victory in Jesus Christ Jesus is more powerful than any sin in the life of anyone if you are willing to trust them if you are willing to surrender if you are willing to not hide it any longer but confess it look for help Seek the Holy Spirit, you're going to find that God is not too far from your wilderness.